can turn to our passage in Luke, even though we won't quite start there. So we are, anybody, any guesses what their message is about today? The singing those two hymns? Resurrection, good. But uh, the, my uh, opening thought will be a little bit different, or at least it's not going to start with uh, Luke. It says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation. This is a title given to God, the God of all comforts, and uh, what it uh, tells us about the character of God is that he wants us to be comforted. He doesn't want us to be discouraged. He likes seeing us happy, if you believe it or not. That's God's great desire for us, and he is the God of all comfort because he keeps coming to us in our needs and in our discouragement and lifts us up or encourages us. Um, but with that, I'll go a little bit closer to the passage for the uh, resurrection we have for us in uh, John chapter 16. This is before the resurrection, but the resurrection is very clearly in Jesus' mind as he's speaking to his disciples. In John chapter 16 and verse 20, the Lord says to the disciples, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. And that's talking about them and how they will feel because of the cross. So we're kind of right now, we're in the in-between. Jesus was crucified, so to speak, as we were speaking last week. And he hasn't yet risen from the dead. They're right in the middle between the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus is saying that they will weep and lament. And Jesus knows that is exactly what they're going to do during that period in between the cross and the resurrection. But the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So now Jesus is preparing them. I know you're going to be sad. I know you're going to be discouraged, but joy is coming. And uh, he gives then an illustration in verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But... I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So here the Lord is comparing their period between the cross and the resurrection as a woman that is in labor. And uh, I imagine both, most of you have experienced labor either on one side or the other. I'm glad I was on the other. But uh, it's, it's truly, uh, probably within a normal, healthy life, there's no greater sorrow than that a woman endures during uh, those probably period of hours 
Um, and that's what the Lord compares the suffering to. But just as in the case of a woman in labor, the sorrow turns into joy, um, and that's true. I've been there. I've seen my wife uh, give birth to uh, four, uh, four children, and it really completely changes. You know, the child is born, you know, the wife is happy. You know, where did it all go away? All the sadness, all the sorrow, it, almost as if it didn't exist. And uh, what the Lord is saying is, this is what it will be like for you. You're going to be so encouraged. I know sorrow, lamentation is coming upon you, but joy is coming right afterward. He's preparing them for the encouragement that the resurrection is going to bring. Why? Why should the resurrection be such a source of joy or encouragement? And there's probably many more than the number of lists. I have five in particular I brought. Um, if you think of more later, you can come share them with me. Uh, the first one is alluded to in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It says there that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What it says there is the resurrection proclaims who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. How do you know the resurrection? That's what it says. Now, why such an encouragement? Didn't they already believe? I mean, Peter said, you know, we believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, their faith was in tatters or shambles or any kind of word of that sort you want, want to come up with. And you will see it in the passage next week that the two disciples talk about their faith in past tense. We thought, we believed that he was uh, the Messiah, the one who was going to save Israel. Their, their faith was really broken. And, and Peter describes his own experience in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter himself says, it was the resurrection. <laughs> yes, I had faith before, but it was really the resurrection that gave us the confidence of who he was. Or if you would, restored it, healed their faith. So that was the first encouragement uh, to them. A very clear declaration of who Jesus was, what the resurrection was. Second, uh, we have it for us in Romans chapter 4. And verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. This goes back to Abraham and the fact that righteousness was imputed to Abraham because he believed in God. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection was God's seal of approval or mark of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And the disciples uh, probably didn't understand yet, before the cross, how it was that they could be made right with God. They believed in Jesus. They believed Jesus was showing them the way. Maybe they had discouragement over their own sins. Maybe they wondered, am I really going to heaven? Uh, they were trusting in Jesus, but they didn't know how Jesus was going to do it. How will Jesus take us to heaven? 
And in the resurrection, we have God's mark that it was the cross in which Jesus has made us fit to be with God for all of eternity. On the cross, he paid for our sins. How do we know? The resurrection. God would not have raised Jesus from the dead if it wasn't that Jesus had finished the work and completely settled the issues of our sins before God in heaven. The resurrection, a mark of God's approval that Jesus really made us right with God. That's what justification means, being made right with God. Righteousness imputed to us. Okay, that's the second. The third one, and probably the one among the five that would be dearest to the disciples or the apostles' heart, when Jesus was taken away from them, they lost their fellowship with him. They've been with him for three years. They loved him. They enjoyed every minute they were with him. And now he was taken away from them. They were separated from him. In John 14, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The fellowship with Jesus was restored because of the resurrection. If Jesus was still dead, the separation with him will remain. Because Jesus rose from the dead, they can have fellowship with him. Now, the fellowship with him in the way they've experienced up to now was limited. They will only have a few more experiences where they will actually be with him and hear him with the sound waves of the air entering their ears and see him with the uh, whatever photons coming into their eyes and the physical presence of Jesus. They will, would have just a limited time of appreciating. They will. They will have a few more opportunities of spending time with him. But his fellowship with them will actually become closer than it ever has. He says this, uh, reading again in verse 20. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus would come to actually dwell with them or in them. Up to now, it was on the outside he would communicate with them. Well, now Jesus would actually come and be with them. And this is the experience that every genuine believer has, it is expressed in the words of the hymn by Meryl Haggard, He Walks With Me. She says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. If you've entered into a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus, you know what she's talking about. He comes within, you have real fellowship, real relationship with him. You enjoy him. And this was, again, the result of the resurrection, that the apostles could once again enjoy fellowship with Christ, and really, enjoy it more than they ever had before. So that was number three. Number four, 
the resurrection demonstrate, demonstrates that Jesus can help me. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus can help me. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, Paul is speaking here, or he's really praying for the Ephesian church. He wants them to know all the riches that they have in Christ. And after listed a couple of others, he's, he's coming to this point, and he says, and what is, I want you to know, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. So we're talking about the power that Jesus has toward us who believe, the power he exerts toward us, which he worked in Christ when he, came, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. How do we know, how do I know that Jesus has the power to help me? And this is not a trivial question. Before I was a believer, I probably thought, it doesn't take a whole lot of power to help me. I'm a pretty good guy after all. But uh, after you're saved, and often in the process of being saved, you start getting convicted about your sins, and you realize you're not such a good guy after all, and boy, I need a lot of help. <laughs> and uh, what Paul is saying, well, look at the resurrection. You're starting with a corpse. There's nothing lower than that. And God raises the corpse and makes it the greatest world power that is. And in fact, the greatest world power that has ever been or ever shall be. God was able to take a corpse and do that. Then he says, God is using the same power in me. That's enough power to help even me. All right, number five. So he has the power to help us in our life. Number five, the resurrection shows that Jesus has the power to help us in our death. And uh, we were singing about it in the words of uh, the hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, and I'm skipping all the hallelujahs, raise your joys and triumph high, sing ye heavens and earth reply. Then love, love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle's won. Death in vain forbids him rise, Christ has opened paradise Lives again our glorious King, where, O death, is now thy sting. Dying once, he all doth save, where thy victory, O grave. So we now, where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And he means dead. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about those believers who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. It's okay to sorrow when someone dies, but God doesn't want us to sorrow as someone who has no hope because there is 
our hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort, the God of all comfort, therefore comfort one another with these words. We can be comforted because, yes, I lost this person, but this person will rise again. And you know what? I will meet them in the air. So we're just talking about a little while of separation with that person. Yes, there can be sadness. Yes, I am separated from them. Yes, I enjoyed fellowship with them, which I will miss, miss for the next uh, period of, of days or weeks or years, but it's just temporary. They will rise, and we will meet them in the air. Even in the face of death, the resurrection is an encouragement to us. Okay, so so much for the background. Uh, don't, don't fear, we'll go fairly quickly through our passage. Uh, Luke 24, and actually we should start in verse 23, because I didn't quite finish the 23rd passage. But keep this in mind, that it was Jesus' goal as the God of all comfort to comfort the disciples in the midst of their sorrows. And uh, that comfort would be provided for them through the resurrection. Okay, so chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 54. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. So that was Friday. Remember last time we ended at the resurrection? <clears throat> Excuse me. We ended with the cross. <clears throat> Jesus was buried, and that was Friday. The Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. They followed after um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that were in the process of burying Jesus, putting Jesus in a tomb. So the women who followed Jesus from Galilee now followed them. They literally followed the corpse that they were taking uh, to the tomb. <clears throat> and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So they watched the process. They knew exactly where Jesus was. And uh, then they returned, verse 56, then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So they also wanted to participate in the burial. It was customary uh, among the Jews at the time. When somebody died, uh, you would wrap them up with grave clothes. Instead of putting them in a the ground, you would put them in a tomb or like a cave. And because... At some point, the body would start corrupting and smell pretty bad. You would put um, perfumes and other things that would smell good that would prevent the body from smelling bad. And so even though that was done for Jesus already, it says, I think in John or one of the other Gospels, that actually Nicodemus brought something like 100 pounds of this good-smelling stuff. So Jesus was well provided for. Not to mention, we know from the Scriptures that Jesus' body never saw corruption. This was actually a prophecy. Jesus didn't need it to start with. 
Now he has 100 pounds of the stuff, but for the ladies, it's not enough. They want to also bring some spice. It's an act of love. Uh, as you know, potentially misguided as this might be, uh, they're, they're trying to, to show Jesus some sort of love, some sort of honor in his present state of being dead. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 24. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain others, other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Surprise. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales or make-believe. And they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So we'll stop there. This is, if you would, Act 1 of the resurrection. Act 2 and then Act 3 will come in future weeks. And really what we have here is just the beginning of the evidence that Jesus is providing to the women and to the, the disciples of his resurrection. Again, this should somehow be a great source of encouragement to them. But it is really just the beginning. Okay, he will continue the revelation next week. Um, so first, we see the women are rewarded. Right? They, perhaps they didn't have some full comprehension of what was going on, but in their act of love and faith, to the level of faith understanding they had, they came to the tomb, and they would be the first one to see the evidence. So there's rewards for those who seek the Lord. <clears throat> um, we see uh, the signs that the Lord gave them. The first one was that uh, the stone rolled away. Maybe get the picture up. <clears throat> and uh, we may not appreciate how much of a sign that is. That stone is probably pretty heavy. So it would take some significant strength to roll it away. Now, probably a few men could do it. After all, a few men were the ones who probably uh, sealed that tomb. But the problem is there was a Roman guard watching. The uh, Jewish leadership seemed to remember better than the disciples that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. And because of that, they asked the, Romans, the uh, Roman authorities to put a guard and a seal. So they actually put a Roman seal on the stone, which to break that seal was a crime against the Roman government. Roman authorities. So you'd have to overcome these guards, 
You'd have to be putting your own life in your hand in order to try to move that stone. So the fact the stone was on the, out of the way was a sign that uh, something happened. Now, God did not need to move the stone out of the way for Jesus to come out. Okay, Jesus, we'll see uh, in later section, can actually go through walls. The disciples will later have a house completely enclosed, and Jesus just goes inside. He doesn't need a door anymore. So he doesn't need the stone rolled out of the way. The stone was rolled out of the way so that the women and whoever wanted to could go in and see the additional evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. This was really part of God's letting us see the evidence that Jesus rose. And uh, there's a book written, if you wanted to read it, it says, Who Moved the Stone? And it was written by a man who started out as a skeptic and by the end of the book became convinced that God moved the stone to show us that Jesus rose from the dead. When you think about the situation and how discouraged the apostles were, you realize there's no way that they would have done it. And there's nobody else that would have wanted to do it. So the very fact the stone rolled away is already an evidence for history that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Our next sign we have, uh, perhaps the most obvious, is the missing body. They go in, they're expecting to see a body. They're going to to put more perfume uh, in the grave clothes, and the body is missing. Why? Well, (laughs) he's risen. He's not here, as the angel says. And that's, again, an evidence for history. First of all, the the ladies got to see it. Whoever wanted to could go and see the evidence of the resurrection. It's, again, an evidence to history. If the body of Jesus was still there, or if somebody moved the body of Jesus somewhere else, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities would have tracked it down, brought out the body, and say, he is not risen. See, here's the body. And the fact that did not happen in history shows that the body of Jesus was really gone. It disappeared. Why? Because he rose from the dead. There's no other explanation. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the second sign. There's a detail for that sign, and that's a grave close were left behind. We see Peter later comes and he sees the grave clothes. If you'd somehow imagine someone wanting to take the body away, they would have taken it with the grave clothes. They wouldn't have unwrapped the grave clothes, left it behind, and taken the body without it. But Jesus did not need the grave clothes after he rose from the dead. So he left them behind. So just another uh, little sign in there. Okay. The third sign, and probably the most significant for the women, was the angels. And uh, we probably don't appreciate it. All we know from this passage, it says that uh, their garments were shining. Try to present it with the light coming out of the cave. Uh, when people are in the presence of angels, they always fall on their knees in fear. That's, that's the, what it's like to be in the presence of angels. So this is probably what had the greatest impact on the ladies, being in the presence of angels. And uh, then, of course, the angels' uh, words to them declaring that Jesus rose from the dead. I kind of like how the angels start. It is almost a mild, very gentle rebuke, but they ask them uh, the question in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a suggestion almost that the ladies should have known better. And then they bring out what's 
the final evidence presented in this passage, which again is just reminding them, and that's the words of Jesus himself, saying the son, Jesus himself told them that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So if they followed Jesus, if they believed in Jesus, and Jesus said he was going to rise again from the dead, and here's the angels in the tomb reminding them, and here's the missing body and the grave clothes lying on the floor, and there's the stone rolled away, everything adds up really nicely. Okay, very strong evidence here for the women that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, by the way, this last one, uh, the word of Christ, is really what did it for me. I, I had uh, people sharing with me when I came to church and trying to suggest to me who Jesus was. And at the end, it was really Rick sitting down with me and showing me prophecies from the Old Testament pointing to Jesus that convinced me of uh, not just the resurrection, but that Jesus was the Messiah. Because you could see every, the Bible pointed to Jesus. Did, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere and died and rose from the dead. There were scriptures, there were prophets who prophesied this event would happen hundreds of years before, so that when he came, he was a fulfillment of those prophecies. Prophecies adding weight to that. It says uh, that Jesus was um, a crucified... Uh, oh, sorry. Let me get it right, please. The description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you first all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So we have the scripture backing the whole thing. The Bible predicted it. Jesus accomplished it, and therefore it is uh, clearly done, something we can believe in and settle. Okay, uh, so here's the evidence. And then uh, the almost sad ending of the passage, but it's okay, it gets better next week. They bring the message to the disciples or the apostles, and it says uh, this in verse 11, and the words seem to them like idols' tales and they did not believe it. So here we have all the evidence being presented to the women first, and then the women take it to the apostles and the other disciples, and they reject it. They said, that's crazy talk. Nobody rises from the dead. Um, now, before we're too hard on the apostles, we need to realize that we would have probably done no better than they did. Really, in the scriptures, we mostly have examples for us to teach us something about ourselves. I, I told this story before. My wife uh, was a very good girl, or at least that's how she felt about herself. And uh, she, she told me this. She felt she was so good, the next time the Bible will be written, it will be about her. Well, not, sorry, not about her, but she will be included. She will be included in it because she was so good. Well, I have news for you. The Bible is not about good people. It's about people like you and me. And so when we see something like this, they're rejecting the evidence. It really should speak to us. That's the way we are. We don't quickly believe what God reveals to us in his word. In the next passage, uh, the two disciples will be rebuked by Jesus, or foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe. It's a willful action. We don't want to believe. We're not willing to believe and to accept what God is presenting to us. So they're really just being like us. Uh, second, we should remember that their faith has just been shattered, their faith in Jesus. Right? We talked about that. They are like the woman right now going through the midst of labor, and you can go next to your wife and say, it's okay, you know. One hour will be done. Don't worry about it. It's not going to fly. She's not going to appreciate that. And in a sense, that's where they are. They're right now suffering, and they're not hearing these words that are designed to encourage them. Uh, and the third thing, third reason we shouldn't be so hard on them is Jesus wasn't. Okay, now, it's not that he doesn't rebuke them, but Jesus is not done. This is just the beginning. He's beginning to reveal to them he rose from the dead. Before the day ends, he will reveal himself to all of them except for one. One of the apostles will have to wait another week. All the rest will see him risen that day and will believe. So Jesus is working with them. He's bringing them to faith. So we shouldn't be too hard on them. A work in progress. <clears throat> and finally, we have here, I guess, the one a shining example is Peter. And that's good because Peter has a lot of examples we talk about in a negative sense. This is a good example. He hears that there's evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. He gets up and he checks it out for himself, which is kind of a condemnation against the rest because they didn't. They thought what the women were saying was so crazy, it's so impossible, I'm not going to bother walking the two miles to the tomb to see if the stone's really rolled away and the body is really missing. But Peter, and we know John from, from uh, the, the Gospel to John, were willing to go and check it out for themselves. And uh, how much did Peter believe at the end of uh, verse 12? I'm not sure. But he wasn't as discouraged as he was before. It says he departed marveling to himself what had happened. That's better. It's better than weeping and mourning, which is where he was before. Okay. <clears throat> so much for them. Now let's talk about us. Always good uh, to, to walk away with some application. And uh, the words that I was thinking about is really the words Jesus said at the very beginning. Uh, we... We read about in John chapter 16. He talks to them, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So how about you? Does that describe you? How about me? <laughs> Does that describe me? Can I say that my Christian life is one full of joy? And I think the sad truth, I shouldn't say I think, I would say I know the truth for myself. More often than not, that is not the case with me. Because I'm not walking full of joy. So I wanted to think about that a little bit, see what we can do about it. And, uh, you know, why, why is it that we don't have joy? And I think there's different reasons that correspond fairly well with what happened here with the disciples. And uh, the first one, <clears throat> is uh, sometimes something happens that kind of blows us away, the unthinkable. Uh, for Sharon and I, that was, and I keep referring to this story, I need to come up with a new one, but uh, uh, nine years ago, Eliana was born. So go back four or five months from that, and we got a phone call saying that uh, 
the ultrasound showed that our daughter may have some serious health issues. And uh, to us, that was the unthinkable. A young couple awaiting their first child, and uh, then that news about the child. And I remember coming to church, I think almost immediately we started calling people pray for us. That's one of the wonderful things in being plugged at a church like Calvary Bible Chapel, is you know people will pray for you. Just call them with your needs. And uh, one brother who, perhaps a bit unthinking, you know, came to me the following Sunday and says, isn't it good to know that the Lord is in control? You say, well, you know, that's true. The Lord is in control. But it was kind of like, you know, a woman being in labor and you coming and putting your hand on her and saying, isn't it good to know the Lord is in control? <laughs> it's not the right time for a comment like that. Um, but it showed something about where I was. You know, you know my faith was, was not very strong at that moment. I, I couldn't say the amen to that statement. Is it good the Lord is in control? Amen. It is good, the Lord. But at that moment, I wasn't there. You know, the waters were above my head, so to speak, as it was in the case of the disciples here. So sometimes that's why we lack joy. I think something is going on, and, and we're just swimming. <clears throat> we're, not, you know, we're not grounded in our faith. You know, it's not ideal, but that's the reality. Sometimes something comes that is just too much for us. Uh, another which is related to it, is uh, I think sometimes, uh, not sometimes, we are a work in progress. Okay, we have faith. And, and maybe I should have started with this, is our joy corresponds to our faith. It's not a side of it. That was the case with the disciples now. They had no joy because they had no faith in the resurrection. Once they have faith in the resurrection, they'll also have joy. So our lack of joy is generally associated with a lack of faith. But uh, we, as they, were also a work in progress. Uh, sometime before the last story, I told you, before Sharon and I were married, we were courting. And part of the job of courting is trying to figure out if you and the person you'd like to marry are aligned on your future goals and expectations. That's a good thing to have firmed out before you actually get married. And um, uh, I think I checked this with Sharon enough yesterday to say that I'm, I'm okay with what I'm saying. <laughs> but I think Sharon asked me something along the line of, you know, do you think you know, God is calling you to be a missionary? Or do you want to go out to the mission missions? Or are you planning to go out to the mission field? And I said something like, well, if it's God's will. And then she said something along the line of, well, you know, how will we be provided for in the mission field? And I said something along the line of, well, you know, God, you know, pays for what he asks. So, meaning, well, God will provide. If God calls us to the mission field, he'll also somehow provide the funds for us. Well, Sharon wasn't that encouraged by what I said. And uh, as it happens to be, we were walking toward a play. We were going to watch, I think it was a Christmas play at uh, some Presbyterian church in Berkeley or something like that. And uh, as we uh, were approaching it, looking for you know, the ticket booth where we have to buy the tickets, a uh, lady walks up to us and says, uh, I have two tickets. And I was looking for someone to give it to. That was the Lord saying, 
I can provide. I can provide. And uh, in that way, the Lord is working in our lives, trying to build up our faith in Him, because that's where our joy will come from. Uh, you may ask the question, well, why doesn't the Lord just do it more? <laughs> why don't we have more signs that will stop doubting and we'll have more joy? And uh, Thomas could have asked the same question. You know, Lord, you know, why did you not show up to me? Apparently, all these others say you showed up to them, and they sure seem happy. <laughs> I'm not happy, because he didn't have faith that the Lord really rose from the dead. And Jesus responds to him when he does appear to him later. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God doesn't want to have to prove everything to us. He wants us to take him at his word. It's part of a relationship. You know, if I tell you something and your response is, prove it to me. You know, where is the relationship? Where is the trust? It says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. God wants us to take him at his word. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't work with us. He worked with the apostles, and he works with us. But our lives are not filled with signs because God wants us to believe what he says. All right. <clears throat> I said we're going to work on our joy. And uh, for that, I had a homework assignment. So those who have the homework assignment, please bring it forward. And... Uh, it's connected to the verse you'll see at the top of that handout. This is Ephesians 1.3. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I said um, one of the reasons that the apostles didn't have joy at the end of the passage, or some of them, was because they didn't take the pains to go two miles and check out the evidence for themselves. Now, we have in the Bible promises of God of all the blessings that he has given us. And there is enough joy in those blessings to fill every heart in this room for all of eternity. I believe that. But we often don't take the pains to check it out for ourselves. So this is your homework assignment for the week. As, uh, there's a list here, and this is a very limited list. I try to save myself some of the trouble of writing up a list. So I went online to find a list. And the first list that came up had like 53 blessings, which is also very far from exhaustive. But I started with that, and I didn't like some of them, so I took them out. And then I wanted some other ones, so I brought them in. So this is not, you know, by any means an original, uh, just a mix of things that I had and, and, and some other people had. But uh, if, if you would allow me to do it, we have about seven minutes. I'd just like to read through these 14, 
And then the homework to you is to take any number of them you choose and spend some time this week looking into it. So read the verse. Make sure you understand what it says. Go to the passage and see what the background to it is. Find supportive verses to that particular promise in the scripture. Think about what it means to you. And we'll see if the Lord brings more joy into your life this week as a result of that. Let me go ahead and read the list, and uh, then we'll close in prayer. Number one, God forgives our sins. Pretty good, huh? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Number two, God declares us righteous, which is better than just forgiving our sins. Because you could be forgiven us your sins and be nothing. But God actually makes us righteous before him. He looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son. Number three, God accepts us in the beloved. And that means that Jesus is seeing you and me in his son. We are as acceptable to him as his own son is. Number four, God gives us access to him. You can come to him anytime you choose. Number five, God makes us his children which is better than just going to heaven. You could go to heaven and be at the rank of the angels, which have multiple ranks, or you can be at the rank below the, the angels and still be in heaven. But God makes us part of his family, which is a higher position than any angel has. Number six, God makes us a new creation. One of my favorites. I don't like the way I used to be. He makes a new creation. Number seven, uh, I'm sorry, let me read the verse as well. <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Number seven, God writes our names in heaven. If you don't think that's a reason to rejoice about, you disagree with Jesus. Because Jesus said, uh, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Pretty good. Number eight, God gives us an inheritance in heaven. Not only are we going to heaven, but there's actually an inheritance there waiting for us. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Number nine, God gives us a mansion in heaven. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Number ten, God works all things for our good. <clears throat> and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God loves us so much, he wants to make us just like Jesus is. 
And he works everything together in our lives for that purpose. Pretty good, huh? <coughs> Number 11, as if that's not good enough, God gives us all things. He, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Number 12, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A whole slew of blessings connected to this one that obviously we don't have space for, but Lots of blessings that come with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Number 13, God places us into the body of Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized or placed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. By the way, the body of Christ is the church. <clears throat> but you haven't just been placed into a bunch of people. You've been placed into the body of Christ. We are his members. There's a unity there. And again, lots of blessings connected with this being placed into uh, Christ, into the church, into the body of Christ. Number 14, last one. God brings us into real fellowship with himself. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You don't just have fellowship with the people you're seeing here, but with God himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your many, many, many blessings to us. Lord, we know we just scratched the surface, and we know, Lord, a true lack is that we don't think about or even fully believe all these promises. Lord, help us believe what you say to us and apply it to our lives so that we may have this joy that no one can take away from us. Lord, and if there is somebody here who has not yet entered into that joy, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that they might be attracted to know him so that these blessings might be theirs also. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.